Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in Amos and in Obadiah. Amos is nine chapters and Obadiah is one chapter. And so really the bulk of this podcast, we are going to be spending our time in Amos. Amos is a prophet in the south in Judah, and he's preaching in the north. So he is preaching at a time when Israel exists. And so this time period of Amos is in the 8th century BC, a couple of years prior to a major earthquake that's going to devastate Israel in the middle of the 8th century. So we can actually pin down the time period of when he's prophesying. And so I have a handful of things I want to talk about. And just know that if I don't discuss all of these things in the podcast, they're in the show notes. But I want to talk a little bit about the geography that Amos is using to teach. And I want to talk a little bit about the idea of a cosmic covenant, that there's this covenant that's bigger than Israel, and it's bigger than the world. And God is using the terms of the cosmic covenant to teach his children. Amos is also going to talk about the captivity. He's also going to speak about human nature and how humans and how we interact in society has repercussions in nature. So Amos is going to really talk about those two ideas, and it's a thread throughout the text. And then the final thing, in Amos chapter 9, there's a couple verses at the very end where Amos gives a really beautiful vision of the restoration. It really jives with the teachings of the Book of Mormon. And so big picture, that's what I see as I approach the book of Amos. Now, Bryce is going to look at the things that destroy societies and how we can take Amos and make it relevant for us in our day. That's right. So there is a rule for living in sacred places like America, like Jerusalem. There's a rule that governs the living there. Now, Lehi inherited that rule when he first came to America. In 2 Nephi chapter 1, Starting in verse 7 all the way through 9, he says, This land is consecrated unto him whom he shall bring. And if it so be that they shall serve him according to the commandments which he hath given, it shall be a land of liberty unto them, and they will never be brought down into captivity. He then continues those blessings in verse 9. I, Lehi, have obtained a promise that inasmuch as those whom the Lord God shall bring out of the land of Jerusalem shall keep his commandments, they shall prosper, they shall be kept, they shall be blessed, none will molest them, no one will take away their land, and they will dwell safely forever. However, if you reject the Holy One of Israel, verse 11, he will bring other nations unto you, he will give them power. They will take away the land of your possessions, and you will be scattered and smitten. You saw this in the Book of Mormon occasionally, like, for example, with the city of Ammoniah. They hit that level, and then the Lamanites came in and conquered them. Nephi sees this fulfillment in what the Gentiles are going to do to the inhabitants of the Americas when they come over here, that they will scatter them. So you can kind of see the consequences of living in sacred soil and not keeping that covenant. Now, any place where God chooses to put a temple or build his covenant, 
everything's Yahweh's land. Yeah. We see this in Leviticus 25, where God says to the Israelites, keep the land in the family. It stays in the family because the tribes of Israel keep the land because it's part of the covenant and it's tied to their relationship with God. And so in their mind, it isn't their land anyway. It's all God's land. And when we have this idea of stewardship versus ownership and it's covenant, the whole land's holy. And what if the whole world is this way? Now, I understand Nephi's perspective. Nephi comes to this new land, and I think Bryce is trying to soften this idea that okay, we're cut off from the land of Israel. So many of the promises of the land of Israel, but the Nephi builds a new covenant with his people and says, well, this land is promised. And so I really like that idea. I, th- I believe, you know, all the way from the southern tip of South America to Canada's northern shores, all the way from Asia to England, what if it's all covenant land and we're reading these chapters through the lens of the Book of Mormon authors, right? What, what if that's a possible interpretation? Yeah, and the point is that if you live on sacred land, which we all do, then if you do not serve the God of that land, you will be swept off that land. So if you'll go all the way to the end of the Book of Mormon and go to Ether 2, verse 10. Verse 10 says, He that possesseth it shall serve God or he'll be swept off, for it is the everlasting decree of God. And now this definition. It is not until the fullness of iniquity among the children of the land that they are swept off. So we could go back through all of the scriptures and find anyone swept off a land and ask the question, what was the fullness of iniquity? We could assemble a list of what are the aspects of the fullness of iniquity that have caused other people to be swept off. For example, Moses chapter 8 that we studied this year pointed out that the land was full of violence. And then he says, that's why I'm cleansing the earth. That's why the flood came, because the earth was filled with violence. Now, the end of the Book of Mormon illustrates many of those points. Mormon sends a letter to his son that we now find in Moroni chapter 9 that describes the people as being without civilization, where Nephite warriors are eating Lamanite women. And they've hit this level of depravity where the Lord says, that's it, the fullness of iniquity. And he sweeps them off. So if you look at Jerusalem, when the northern tribes were taken captive is a sweeping. When the southern tribes were taken captive into Babylon is a sweeping. So Amos is going to focus on at least three of those aspects of the fullness of iniquity. And the reason I think they're worth studying this week is because if this is what destroys societies, then this is what destroys families. And these are the things I need to keep out of my home. Because if they destroy societies, they're a sure bet that they will destroy a marriage, that they will destroy relationships, they will destroy communities today. So let's go to Amos. And the first one that Amos mentions is a common theme. We see it among the northern tribes. We saw it among the Jews that went into Babylon. And that simply put is harm against the most vulnerable, children and widows and elderly. When you bring harm against children, when you sacrifice children, when you murder children, when you hurt the innocent, you get to a point where the sweeping is very close. 
And so Amos is going to point that out many times, that in Israel, they were violent against the most innocent. So probably the best description of what was going on is in Amos chapter 2, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, or four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Behold, they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes that pant after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor and turn aside the way of the meek. A man and his father will go into the same maid to profane my holy name. They lie themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. That's a pretty significant list against Israel. But the one that I want to point out, and the one that Amos is going to repeat, is that they have brought violence against the most innocent, the righteous who are just trying to do good deeds, the poor, and the meek. Now, in chapter 5, if you want to jump forward, he's going to be a little bit more specific. In verse 12 of chapter 5, For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. They afflict the just. They take a bribe, and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. They are bringing violence and harm to the most innocent, the poor children, widows. Now, we've seen that all throughout the Old Testament, that God is the God of children and widows. Now jump to chapter 8, verse 2, the end is come upon my people of Israel. Verse 3, there shall be many dead bodies in every place. Now the question is why? Verse 4, O ye that swallow up the needy even to make the poor of the land to fail. Verse 5, you do all the things in verse 5, verse 6, that ye may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. We saw that earlier. Yea, and sell the refuge of the wheat. So one aspect of the fullness of iniquity, sure to get your society swept off, is to not take care of the needy. So if I were having a discussion and I were talking about, okay, if that gets a society destroyed, what are the warning signs that are coming into our society today that we as a family could avoid? And is there an emphasis we could make as a family on those who are in need? I think there's a lot of discussions you could have about that the church needs to take care of the most vulnerable. Now, how many times did the scriptures, back when we were laying out the kings, how many times did the scriptures point out that they were using sorcery and divination, which is code words for child sacrifice? I'll, I'll make a brief mention of this idea of child sacrifice. We see this God in the fifth chapter, uh, verse 26. But you have borne the tabernacle of your molech and kiun, your images, the star of your God, which you made to yourselves. Now, I'm not going to get into Kiu, and I, I will talk briefly about Molech. We believe Molech was used as a 
tool for the Israelites in child sacrifice. And it does say in the Hebrew, your molech, and that is second person masculine plural. That's what's going on in the 26th verse. And so essentially what Amos is saying is you guys, meaning all you guys in Israel have been involved in child sacrifice. And John Day's written a good book on this. We'll put some stuff in the show notes for you if you want to do a deep dive on, you know, where is Molech mentioned in the Old Testament? You know, if that interests you, because I don't really take a hard position of when they are and when they aren't doing this. I think a lot of these texts were edited after the case. And so sometimes the editors want to pin the tail on the donkey on a specific group they don't like. So how can we contextualize this in our life? How can we take this and maybe put it into modern speech? If there's anything we can do to protect the harming of children from the unborn all the way to the time that they're adults, how can we cultivate a society that's friendly to them? Yeah. Now, let me add one more to that, that Elder Packer, towards the end of his life, this is President Packer, who spent many years in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, said something, and it just shook me to my very core. He said, like my brethren, I have held positions of trust in education, in business, in government, and in the church. I have written books and, like them, have received honors and degrees and certificates and plaques. Such honors come with the territory and are undeserved. Assessing the value of those things, the one thing I treasure more than any of them, more than all of them put together, the thing of most value to me is how our sons and daughters and their husbands and wives treat their children and how in turn our grandchildren treat their little ones. That is significant. I think that's a very take-home lesson, that violence against the innocent, the poor, those in need will cause societies to be wiped out. Therefore, as individuals and as families and as wards, we should be focusing our diligent attention on those vulnerable people who need help, and we should be seeking them out. Yeah. Look in chapter 5, verse 14. I'm just going to read a couple verses here before we move forward. Verse 14 says, Seek good and not evil, that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you even as ye have spoken. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. That idea of establishing judgment or mishpat in the gate is that word for fairness again. And the gate was the place of contracts. It was the public space. Remember, that's where Boaz lays claim to Ruth. The gate is where everyone knows what's going on. And so in Amos's view, we have to be public with what we're doing, and it's got to be fair. And if it is, then the cosmic covenant dictates that the land will produce and will have peace. But if you don't, we're going to have problems. And so skip down to verse 24. Reverend Martin Luther King quoted the 24th verse of Amos in his I Have a Dream speech. And we actually put that in the show notes and we linked it to his speech. And from his perspective, the Constitution of the United States was a promissory note that Dr. King hoped would one day come to pass in his day. And I love where he expresses these ideas that we look at people 
by the content of who they are and not by the color of their skin or whether they're rich or poor. And he quotes Amos in verse 24, where it says, but let judgment, or that, that's that word mishpat again, or fairness, let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. And so what we have here are a couple of beautiful ideas, this idea of social fairness. Some people call it social justice. I know that's a loaded word, but this idea of fairness but it's overlaid with the image of beautiful waters and fertility. So can you see what Amos is doing here? Amos is taking the image of the world that he lives in or the land, and he's overlaying it with the image of human society. And they're both together. You can't separate them. And so when we talk about things like environmental issues, we need to realize that it's a twofold thing. It's the human relationship issues and fairness as well as the environment. And if we try to split the two and fix one without fixing the other, I think we're going to run into some problems because from Amos's perspective, everything is tied together. And the whole time Bryce was talking about children, I was thinking about the land and I just kept having images in my head of 1939 to 1945 and how the land was devastated. And that country that rose up and took power and hurt children became devastated. So in that sense, Amos's prophecies really do have some depth. Yeah. So there's one aspect of the fullness of iniquity, violence against the innocent and specifically against children. Let's do a second one that he addresses in that same chapter of chapter two. And this is the idea of silencing God and his prophet, the refusal to hear God. Now, we've all seen a child do that, right? Their brother is saying something and they don't want to hear it, so they cover their ears and say, la, 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 I'm not listening, I'm not listening. And sometimes we do that to God. I'm not listening. I don't want to hear what you have to say. And when we do that, then we are left to ourselves and we're swept off. When we as a nation do that, we are going to be swept off. And so he says in chapter 2, he's talking about all that he's done for them. Starting in verse 10, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up of your sons for prophets. I gave you prophets and your young men for Nazarites, covenant-making people. Is not even thus, O ye children of Israel, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. See, that was their covenant. You deliberately pushed and tempted and forced the covenant-making people to break their covenants. And then this line, and commanded the prophets, saying, prophesy not. They silence the prophet. We do not want to hear what a prophet has to say. And we actually see this happen in the text with Amos and Amaziah. So go to chapter 7 of Amos, and this is where Amaziah, and notice it says in verse 10, the priest of Bethel, Amaziah is basically going to tell the king of Israel to not listen to Amos. So I'm just going to read a couple verses here. Go to verse 10 of chapter 7. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. So Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee thee away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and prophesy there." 
but prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel and it is the king's court. Now remember, Dan to Bethel, we're talking about the northern and southern borders of Israel. And so Bethel's kind of at that southern end. And Amaziah is essentially saying, go back to your land, Amos. Remember, Amos is from the south. And then he says, go there and eat bread. Now that's code speak for... Get out of town. Yes, yes, get out of town. And go get payment from your people. And this is where it's a little bit tricky, but we need to know this, that kings often had advisors. And we saw this in Daniel with the diviners. We saw this with King Noah in the Book of Mormon. He had his own priests that counseled him. Right, right. And that my, my take is that's really Amaziah's position. He's a professional prophet, and he is getting paid. And his assumption is, that Amos is. But notice Amos's response in verse 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Amos here is insisting that he is not a professional prophet. He is a man who has been brought into the sowed or into God's counsel, meaning he has been up into heaven and been with the counsel of the gods. Now, we're going to talk about this later, but Amos, his rebuttal to Amaziah is, I'm not a professional prophet. I am just a man that is coming to warn you guys of what's coming. And all Amaziah can do is basically throw the genetic fallacy at him, which is, well, because you're from this place, we're not going to listen to you. you. You're not one of us. You're not one of us, man. Now, watch how the Book of Mormon does that, right? So King Noah and his priests do not want to hear Abinadi. So they silence Abinadi and they burn him. But then what happens to King Noah and his people? The Lamanites come in and scatter them. Do you see that? Try and silence a prophet and get scattered, get swept off. We saw it again in Ammoniah the very place where they were burning the women and the children. Alma says in chapter 10, if it were not for the prayers of the righteous who are now in the land, ye would even now be visited with utter destruction. It wouldn't be by flood. It would be by famine and pestilence and sword. Therefore, he says in verse 23, if you cast out the righteous from among you, then will the Lord not stay his hand. And that very city got slaughtered by the Lamanites. And then we saw it again with Mormon. Do you remember how his people would not let him prophesy or preach? Ironically, they wanted him to lead them in military battle, but they would not let him speak. Mormon chapter 1, I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut. I was forbidden that I should preach unto them, for behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God, and the beloved disciples were taken away. But I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them. Just like Amos was told, prophesy not. Now, the moment you do that, you are ripe for the sweeping to silence a prophet, because that is the very means that God uses to save us. This is our day. We live in a world trying to silence people, and I think that's dangerous. I think the founders wanted to build a society where you and I can have different opinions, and we should still have a, a marketplace of ideas where we can talk, and if we silence the prophet, I mean, we're just hurting ourselves. That's right. We're just hurting ourselves. Therefore, we get to this pinnacle verse, Amos chapter 3, verse 7. 
Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophet. He uses prophets to deliver his messages. I would encourage you to take some time this week and go read 3 Nephi chapter 19 and notice what he does with the 12 disciples. He purifies them. He makes them holy and baptizes them, fills them with the Holy Ghost, and then he says to the audience, he basically prays and says, Father, purify all those that listen to them. That his process is to purify us by hearing and receiving the words that come through prophets. Therefore, to silence the prophet, to say, I refuse to listen to the prophet, is hurting you because that's how God brings blessings into our lives. He revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Yeah. I just find it so interesting that before the scattering in 721, the Lord sends a cluster of prophets. And before the destruction of the temple in 600 BC, the Lord sends a collection of prophets. It's so interesting that before these great times of trouble, it's not just one or two, but the Lord sends several. And I think that tells us a little bit about his character. Yeah. Now, in chapter 7 of Amos, verse 15, Amos says, The Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy unto my people. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, prophesy not against Israel, meaning this is Amos talking to Amaziah, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus saith the Lord. So his rebuttal is verse 17. At the end of verse 17, he says, Israel shall surely go into captivity out of this land. Now, think about this. How does Amos know this? And I think that's tied back into Amos 3. Amos 3 verse 7 really is right to the point. And yet, in English, I do think it's a little bit clunky. You see, the idea that God won't do anything except he revealeth the sowed. The sowed is the word translated as secret to the prophets. And now what is the sowed? Well, the sowed is a council or a gathering of the divinities in the heavens. In the religious world of the ancient Near East, the cosmos was understood to be ruled by the gods who not only existed in great numbers and could be conceived of as a pantheon, but they frequently acted as an assembly or a council. And to me, what I see is the Father, Heavenly Father and, and the Son, Jesus Christ. I see Heavenly Mother on that council. I see divine beings. As Psalm 82 kind of hints that we were there, that we participated. And what they did was they deliberated to make decisions about the world and its inhabitants. But know this, that by the time of Josiah, this idea of seeing the Father and the Son and these divinities was really changed, and it kind of coalesced into this strict monotheism that much of the Bible reflects. But in the earlier texts, they really did see this idea of divine beings, plural, even in Genesis 1, Bryce, read that one verse in Genesis 1 where they create Adam and Eve. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the fowls of the air and over the cattle and over the earth and over the creeping things. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So it really does use those plurals linguistically. The Hebrew is reflecting this. And many scholars of the Old Testament have written about the divine council, and we put a few of their writings in the show notes. 
So a few verses I want to just reference. This idea of a divine counsel is all over the place in the Old Testament. The first one I want to say, and I think this is just masterful of the prophet Joseph, is Abraham 3. We read this idea that there were noble and great ones, and they were there, and they deliberated to organize the world. And they're in the presence of God, but then we read that one stood among them that was likened to God and said, we, plural, will go down and we will make an earth. That is the divine counsel. And so that is what I see in Amos 3.7, that Amos is brought up into this council of divine beings and he sees the future. And so it doesn't matter what Amaziah is going to say to him. Amos is like, I know where I'm going with this and I'm going to give you my message. A couple other phrases that you might want to look for when you read the King James Bible are the assembly of God. You'll read that phrase in the text. Another one you read is the congregation of the saints. It's really the congregation of the holy ones or the kaha kedoshim. The word for kedoshim comes from that word kodesh, which means to be made holy or to be sanctified. And so the kodeshim are typically translated as saints, but it's also the holy ones. And so if you think about what is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, well, it's the kahal, it's the gathering or the assembly of God or the assembly of Jesus Christ of the Kodashim in the latter days. And so we have all these ideas of the congregation of the holy ones in the Old Testament. Sometimes they're called the council of the holy ones or the council of Yahweh, and sometimes it's called the council of God. We see it in Psalms 111, verse 1, Praise ye the Lord, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. And that is in the Sod, or in the council of the holy ones. And we see it in Jeremiah 23, where it says, For who has stood in the council of the Lord? And that's where Jeremiah talks about his prophetic message because he stood in the council of the Lord. And so Jeremiah's words are very much associated with what Amos is saying. We see this in Revelation 4, where John sees God's throne in heaven, and then he sees 24 elders sitting around clothed in white raiment. And by the way, that verse in Revelation 4, verse 4 is really good in the King James, but I really like the literal Greek reading. So I'm going to read this and tell me if this sounds familiar to you. John sees heaven and what he sees. Here's, here's my translation of Revelation 4, 4. In a circle round about the throne of God were 24 thrones. And upon these thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, they having been clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold upon their heads. That's a beautiful image. And in that image, I think what we see is God working with these other divine beings and deliberating over the course of events. And then finally, 1 Nephi chapter 1, Lehi is brought up from the earth into the council of God. And he says, quote, I saw numberless concourses of angels, and then a group of 12 others, and then one descending out of their midst, whose luster was above that of the sun at noonday. There's others. Like we could do a whole hour geek out just on the divine council. And so I just want to submit that to you, that I really see Joseph Smith in the restoration from the very beginning. And I'm talking first vision, he is revealing to us that we have a father, that there's a son. And before he dies, he reveals to the saints, we have a heavenly mother as well. And I see that reflected in the words of Amos 3 verse 7.
And the way we tap into that counsel, the way we connect with them. Now, there is a personal line of communication. In no way do we want to diminish that, that I can pray and speak to Heavenly Father and I can get revelation for me as well. But there is another line of communication through which so much communication comes, and that's the priesthood line, and that's our prophet. And that's the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's the Quorum of the Twelve and First Presidency. We tap into that counsel when we listen to and heed the words of a prophet. To silence that voice in our life is to silence God's blessings. And that leaves us vulnerable to the world and we're going to be swept off. So now number three. In chapter 4, the Lord walks through this list. Let me tell you all that I've done to try and get you to come back. Now, the whole book of 1 Nephi illustrates this by pointing out how large a stick the Lord has to get out to get Laman and Lemuel to do something that's in their very best interest. So when Lehi commands them to go back to Jerusalem, they won't. So what's the stick that he gets out? Well, a lecture from their father does it. A lecture from their father causes them to leave Jerusalem. But that stick won't work when they're on the boat. Do you remember that Lehi pleads with them and they don't listen? So the next go around, when they're in Jerusalem getting the plates and they're beating up Nephi, the Lord has to get down a bigger stick. And that's the angel that he sends to stop them from beating Nephi. Later, he sends a bigger stick with the Leahona and the writing on the Leahona. He also sends his own voice. You can see in 1 Nephi that he's getting bigger and bigger sticks. They are getting darker and darker, and they are more and more refusing to obey. Therefore, the Lord's response has to get larger and larger. Do you remember that the tears of a woman worked in chapter 7 of 1 Nephi, but it doesn't work in chapter 18 on the boat? Nephi's wife and his children with their tears did not soften their heart. So there comes a point where the Lord doesn't have a stick left, so to speak. And so that's what Amos is addressing in chapter 4. In chapter 4, the Lord walks through this list of everything I've done to try and get you to come back, but you wouldn't. In my scriptures in chapter 4, I highlighted all the I haves and contrasted that with all the yets. Notice all of them. So starting in verse 6, he says, I have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your places, yet ye have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And then he begins this big long list. In verse 7, he says, I have, and yet right in the middle of verse 8, yet have you not returned unto me. Verse 9, I have, I've smitten you with blasting. End of verse 9, yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Verse 10, I have. In fact, you get two I haves in verse 10. And then he says at the end of verse 10, yet have ye not returned unto me. And then comes the 12. I have run out of sticks. Therefore, thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do it unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Not the way you could have met God. But the therefore there suggests that this is the fullness of iniquity. When God runs out of sticks, he can't help you anymore. And you are left scattered. Now, 
I just want to do a quick linguistic nerd out here because you keep reading all these verses, yet you have not returned unto me. That word returned is shuv in the Hebrew, and that word can mean turn. It can mean again or back or return, and it can also mean repent. And it's three characters in Hebrew. It's like the shin and the vow, the nail, and the shin is like the flames. And then the bait, the last letter is is the home. In fact, the word bait, literally the word itself means home, but bait can also mean like the womb or mother. And so that idea of shuv to me is come home to mother or come home. And so I really see this as a gentle reminder by God where he says, you guys come home, just come home. And and by the way, the Book of Mormon reflects this. And Joseph doesn't know this. He's 20 something when the Book of Mormon is translated. But go to the last verse of 3 Nephi. See that word right there? Verse 2? There it is. Shuv. Turn, all you Gentiles, from your wicked ways and turn or repent. Shuv of your evil doings and your lyings and your deceivings and your hordes and all these things. Okay, there's a bunch of bad stuff. The Nephites are, you know, they're being knuckleheads, just like you're talking about in Amos. And then look in verse two, towards the end of that verse, and come unto me and be baptized in my name, that ye may receive a remission of your sins and be filled with the Holy Ghost and be numbered with my people who are of the house of Israel. Joseph Smith is using the word shuv or turn perfectly in a Hebrew linguistic context. There it is right there. Now, my take is it's not Joseph Smith. This is Mormon editing the book. My take is Mormon has probably read Amos. Remember, Amos is pre-temple destruction. So Pre-Lehi going to America. Pre-Lehi. He's probably read this stuff, but it's not just Amos using this concept. It's as old as the Hebrew Bible, but I find that fascinating. In other words, hey guys, come home. Just come home. Come home to mother or come home to the house. Shuv. Now watch Mormon experience that very thing himself. He's going to be in the position of Amos with his own people. In Mormon chapter 2, verse 8, he writes, Behold, the land was filled with robbers and with Lamanites, but notwithstanding the great destruction which hung over my people. Now that's the biggest stick God can get out. He can't get a bigger stick out than absolute destruction. But notwithstanding the destruction which hung over my people, they did not repent of their evil doings. They will not repent, no matter how bad it gets. Therefore, there was blood and carnage spread throughout all the face of the land, both on the part of the Nephites and also the Lamanites. Now jump down to verse 12. It came to pass that when I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord. Okay, so they're sorry. They're mourning. My heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. As soon as he sees that they're mourning, then that might lead them to repentance, and then they can become a righteous, blessed, protected people. Verse 13, but behold, my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned. Because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin, and they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits. No matter what happened, they wouldn't turn to God, but they did curse God and wish to die. And then Mormon concludes in verse 15, because of that, it came to pass that my sorrow did return again unto me, and I saw that the day of grace was passed away. And he knew that the sweeping was not far behind that that they would be swept off. 
And I think one of the things, this is the take-home lesson for me, is when bad days come in our families, when tragedy happens, is to sit down and with our children and talk about God's divine purposes and that a loving Heavenly Father is still with us and we testify of God in the darkness. I think this is the opportunity to say, if this is what destroys nations, if getting so cold that no matter what happens, I don't yield to God, then I would hope my children see me yielding to God with lesser things, that they constantly see our family turning to God, even in tragedy, even in pain, and pull him into our lives. I think that's the discussion I would have with my children. But that is the third aspect of the fullness of iniquity that Amos mentions. Number one is the violence against the most innocent and specifically children. Number two, the refusal to hear his voice, the silencing of a prophet. And then number three is no matter what happens, no matter how bad it gets, we do not repent, we do not soften our hearts, and we do not turn to God. He's trying to help us, and nothing he would do is softening our heart to put us in that position. So there's the third one that Amos mentions. Now, what I'd like to do also before we leave Amos is that I think Amos talks about some preliminary, some paths that lead to the fullness of iniquity. He warns of some tendencies in our lives that are the path that ends at the fullness of iniquity. So let's talk about three paths that lead to the fullness of iniquity. And the first one he mentions, I want to jump to chapter 5, starting in verse 18. Now, we've seen this all throughout the Old Testament. We saw this in Isaiah, but it really comes to light here in Amos where he's talking about fullness of iniquity. And the idea here is that understanding that reading the scriptures and covenants and ceremonies and Sabbath day and all of the things that we do in the church are means to an end. They are not the end. But if we mistake that and we make them the end, then we miss out on where they are trying to lead us to. I say that because I love that the Lord emphasizes reading the scriptures so much in the latter days. The Book of Mormon pleads with us to cling to the rod of iron, but sometimes that becomes the goal. Just check it off. I read the scriptures. And maybe we don't even know what it's trying to teach us. And the point is, doing that is supposed to lead you somewhere. Don't not get there because you got so caught up in checking it off. By the way, why do we do that? I just, it's a funny thing about religious people in general. We turn the means into the end and we turn it into a checklist. I've been to the temple. Check it off. By the way, Bryce... I think we see Jesus trying to refocus people where he's talking to these hyper-religious people. I mean, I do this. We all do. I think it's a natural tendency, which is why I'm grateful that Amos brings it up. He says, don't let your worship become the checklist, check it off, I've done it. Let your worship lead you to him. It needs to lead you to acting like him, to loving him, to falling at his feet. And so Amos begins to address this in verse 18 of chapter 5, where he says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Now, that sounds like a weird phrase, right? Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. But what he's saying here is the worship of the Sabbath day has become the end 
not the means. You focus so much on the worship of the day that you're not worshiping him on that day. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? In other words, it's supposed to lead you somewhere. Where is it leading you? You have turned the day into darkness and not light. Verse 20, shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light? Why have you turned it into darkness? Even very dark and no brightness in it. I hate and despise your feast days. I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. We saw this way back in Isaiah 1. Your burnt offerings, I'm done with. No more. I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings. Take that away from me. But that's where he gets to verse 24 that Mike read earlier. Let judgment run down as waters. Let wisdom, in other words, become what the ordinance is inviting you to become. By the way, Bryce, in verse 18, woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. Another way that can be read is the final day when Yahweh comes and everything is fixed. And I think some of the people thought, if he comes, we're going to be vindicated. And I think that Amos is inviting them to think different. In other words, don't think because you're religious or because you're the house of Israel, or we read Jesus saying this, where he's like, the Lord can take these stones and make them sons of Abraham. Latter-day Saints, maybe we get caught up in this idea of, I just want Jesus to come so it will get all those bad guys. And I think that Amos would be saying, you know what? Don't worry about that. Just be good. Be in the day right now and let the day come when it comes. That's the point. Let the hope for the day lead you to the man who's coming, the God that's coming, and let him come into your life today. For me, it is very significant that two groups of people make it to the tree of life in Lehi's dream, two groups of people, but one group does not stay, they leave. So I have spent decades asking myself, what's the difference between the groups that make it to the tree and don't stay? Because I love many people who are described by that. And what's the difference between the people who make it to the tree and stay? And one thing that I've noticed in 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 30, those who make it to the tree and stay fall down and worship. Now, those who made it to the tree made it by the help of the rod, and the rod led to the tree, but they seem to have missed the purpose of grabbing the rod. Grabbing the rod was supposed to lead you to him, to love him, to adore him, and want to live like he lives. It's supposed to lead you to serve others. If you're not getting to the tree and falling down and worshiping, then you might be missing the whole point of reading and studying. If you're not getting to Jesus in the sacrament, because it's just something we do every single week, if we're not getting to Christ in the temple, but we're going through the motions, then I would invite you to rethink how you worship. Those are the people that stay at the tree. You know, sometimes I think about this where I think about just be present. 
Like it's one thing to have family dinner, but it's another thing to put your phone away, look each other in the eye and really be present. And I think this is, uh, this is just kind of how I'm packaging this, Bryce, as you're talking, but I'm thinking, okay, what you're saying about the sacrament, the Lord's like, no, I really want to be present with you right now. Like this matters. It's just a really good way to look at this. And just another thing, I the whole time you're reading verse 30, just look at the front end of verse 30 there in First Nephi 8. I'm always saying this. Nephi says, but to be short in writing, to me, that's code where Nephi says, guys, there is so much I could say about verse 30. And you can just see Nephi scratching his head going, but I only have so much space. That's right. But I think he would say some of these things. Yep. So... I had a student share this with me, and I just think her language is absolutely beautiful. She said, I often find myself worrying too much about what kind of person I'm perceived as. I want to be seen as Christ-like so much that sometimes I forget what Christ-like means. I think that's just beautiful. And I think that's what Amos is trying to say. Don't let your worship be the end. Let your worship lead you to the Savior and fall at his feet. Number two in the preliminary warnings is what chapter six is about. Amos chapter six is this woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Now that would catch my attention. The fact that Nephi picks that up and spends some time on that even more so catches my attention. Woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. And then he gives us this list. You know, here's the things that you're doing. But, so what I did is I highlighted the word woe unto them that. And then in verse three, there's another that. And then in verse four, there's another that. And then in verse five, there's another that. And then in verse six, there's another that. Combining all of those together, he says, woe unto them that do these things. And then the end of verse six has the rest of that. But they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. My interpretation of what this means, to be at ease in Zion, are those that don't care about the problems. They're not concerned about the things we need to fix. And the moment you stop caring about the things we need to fix, which is as essential to the human condition as anything else, the moment you are at ease with your imperfections, is the moment you stop trying to improve. I see something I need to fix, but I'm not fixing it. Well, then the Lord's going to take that light away and you just won't see it anymore. Woe unto those who no longer are concerned about the challenges that the church faces and that their family faces and that they face. Now, if I could point to one scriptural story and say, I think that's the point. Do you remember in the Book of Mormon where Lahontai gets upon the top of a mountain and Amalekiah invites him all the way down to the bottom of the mountain? And he says, no, I won't go to the bottom of the mountain. So then Amalekiah goes up nearly to the top and he says, come down a little and bring your guards you're safe. Bring your guards. You're not down to the bottom of the mountain. Just come down a little. Now, Lahontai will end up poisoned by degrees because that little became another little, which became another little. 
To be at ease in Zion is to feel safe in coming down a little. And then you're going to feel safe coming down a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and before you know it, you will be at the bottom of that mountain, and you will be like Lahontai, poisoned by degrees. I want to share this beautiful thought from President Thomas S. Monson about Brother Clayton M. Christensen, both of which have passed away. President Monson said, May I share with you an example of one who determined early in life what his goals would be? I speak of Brother Clayton M. Christensen, a member of the church who is a professor of business administration in the business school at Harvard University. When he was 16 years old, Brother Christensen decided, among other things, that he would not play sports on Sunday. Years later, when he attended Oxford University in England, he played center on the basketball team. That year, they had an undefeated season and went through to the British equivalent of what in the United States would be the NCAA basketball tournament. They won their games fairly easily in the tournament, making it to the final four. It was then that Brother Christensen looked at the schedule and, to his absolute horror, saw that the final basketball game was scheduled to be played on Sunday. He and his team had worked so hard to get where they were, and he was the starting center. He went to his coach with his dilemma. His coach was unsympathetic and told Brother Christensen he expected him to play in the game. The backup center had dislocated his shoulder, which increased the pressure on Brother Christensen to play in the final game. He went to his hotel room. He knelt down and asked his Heavenly Father if it would be all right just this once if he played that game on Sunday. He said that before he finished praying, he received this answer, quote, Clayton, what are you even asking me for? You know the answer, end quote. He went to his coach, telling him how sorry he was that he wouldn't be able to play in the final game. Then he went to his Sunday meetings in the local ward while his team played without him. He prayed mightily for their success. They did win. That fateful decision was made more than 30 years ago. Now, here's his point. Brother Christensen has said that as time has passed, he considered it one of the most important decisions he ever made. It would have been very easy to have said, you know, in general, keeping the Sabbath day is holy and is right. But in my particular extenuating circumstance, it's okay just this once if I don't do it. However, he says, his entire life has turned out to be unending streams of extenuating circumstances. Had he crossed the line just that once, then the next time something came up that was so demanding and so critical, it would have been so much easier to cross the line again. The lesson he learned is that it is easier to keep the commandments 100% of the time than it is 98% of the time. I believe that's what Enos and Nephi are talking about when they condemn those who are at ease in Zion. They have come down a little bit and they feel like nothing's wrong. Don't be at ease in Zion. Warning number two. Now, warning number three is at the end of chapter six, verse 13. Ye which rejoice in a thing of naught. That phrase is going to come up repeatedly in the New Testament and in the Book of Mormon. To rejoice in a thing of naught. Why are you putting so much time and effort in something that really isn't worth it because it's going to come to naught? 
Now, the contrary to that, the Book of Mormon and the New Testament use the phrase set at naught. So there are things that are set at naught, and then there are things that come to naught. The things that come to naught are the things we overemphasize, but we shouldn't because they just kind of come to naught. The things that are set at naught, we underemphasize. Important things that never disappear, but we set them at naught. Even the God of Israel do we set at naught. Let me read a couple scriptures so you can kind of see this elsewhere. In 1 Nephi chapter 19, starting in verse 7, For the things which some men esteem to be of great worth, both to the body and the soul, others set at naught and trample under their feet. Yea, even the very God of Israel do men trample under their feet. I say trample under their feet, but I would speak in other words. They set him at naught. Verse 9, the world because of their iniquity shall judge him to be a thing of naught. Wherefore they scourge him, and he suffereth it. They smite him, and he suffereth it. Yea, they spit upon him, and he suffereth it because of his loving kindness and his long suffering towards the children of men. Make sure you are not underemphasizing the really important things in life. And be careful not to overemphasize the lesser important things of life, which will come to naught. If you want to turn in the New Testament to Acts chapter 5. The Jews are complaining to this wonderful doctor of the law named Gamaliel about Peter and John and the disciples who are preaching, and his advice is phenomenal. Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 34, then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of law, and had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles a little space. And he said unto them, ye men of Israel... Take heed to yourself what you intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody. Boy, that sounds like social media. That sounds like so many things that are going to come to naught. They boast themselves to be somebody. To whom a number of men, about 400 joined, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily ye be found fighting against God. The counsel from the scriptures is, don't put so much time and effort into things that will come to naught. No matter how much I may love a car or a possession, it will come to naught. I loved my friends in high school, but I haven't spent much time with them in the last 30 years. It's easy to underappreciate a sibling back in high school. How many of you were a little rude to a younger brother or a younger sister because they annoyed you? But family doesn't come to naught. I have spent more time with that younger brother than I ever spend with my very best friends from high school. 
So it would have been wise for me to appreciate that younger brother or that younger sister. If you go back in chapter 5, back to Amos, this whole idea of the council that was coming out of Bethel, Amos says in verse 5, But seek not Bethel, nor enter into Gilgal, and pass not to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to naught. Know the difference between things that are going to come to naught and things that other people set at naught, which certainly are not going to come to naught. Now, before we go on, I just want to introduce this idea that everything Bryce is saying about verse 13 is great English. It works, but there's another way to read it. And so I just want to introduce this just for those of you that are like, okay, how is this constructed? If you go in the Hebrew, and we put this in the show notes, what we have is they're rejoicing in Lodavar or in no thing, which is exactly what Bryce is saying, but that is also a place. It is a place in the northern part of Gilead that was hotly contested for some time, and the Israelites conquered it. And then that bit in there where it says, have we not taken to us the horns by our own strength? That word Karnaim is another place location. It's a town in the Bashan region. And remember, both of these were part of the northern kingdom, and they were hotly contested. And so their places, their locations, but the English also works. But in context of the place and the culture and the time period, another way Amos is communicating these ideas is by saying, don't you guys get cocky about a couple locations that y'all have conquered? You're missing the point. And so they are locations. I just want to acknowledge that. And if you think about it, in the context of what Bryce is talking about, I mean, we see this today where people, you know, we all do this, where we kind of look at things that we've done that are good and we're like, man, I'm pretty awesome. Yeah. Come to not versus set it not. And so with that, we're going to look at a couple other themes in the book of Amos. I want to talk a little bit about Amos's words of warning about captivity. So we see some of his counsel and it's very direct. For example, if you look in chapter 5, verse 27, Amos says, I will cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts or the God of armies. You're going to go into captivity. That theme is really a thread that's woven throughout his oracles. You're going to see this in chapter 6, verse 7, 7, verse 11, and 7, 17. Now, there's other places where he does this as well. He tells them, you're going to go beyond Damascus. You're going to go up to the north, and you will be conquered. So just like uh, Isaiah talks about this, just like Jeremiah talked about this to the Jews, Amos, a man from the south, goes to the northern kingdom and tells them that they will be taken into captivity. And so with that, we also see the theme of the cosmic covenant. You see, Amos saw evidence of a destroyed ecosystem and the physically destroyed society. We see things like rains being withheld that then caused a famine. That's Amos 4, 6 through 8. We see Amos's description of blight and mildew consuming crops. That's in Amos 4, verse 9. And then earthquakes devastating the land, ruining the gardens and the cities. Now we see that in Amos 1, verse 2, where he references the earthquake, but also in Amos 4, verse 11. And then finally in the seventh chapter, we see Amos describing a drought that devours the land generally. 
generally. And so big picture to Amos, if we don't have justice in the gate, if we don't have society that is established on the foundation of fairness, then the land is going to have problems. Now, Tolkien plays with this idea in Lord of the Rings, uh, and I can't help myself, guys. I got to talk about Tolkien briefly, but if you remember Saruman, while he's busy doing his thing, Gandalf is establishing the fellowship and getting the leaders of these different groups to come to an agreement that we've got to destroy the Ring of Power. Well, Saruman is gathering his armies. He's creating these orcs. And at least in the films, they depict the hacking of the trees and the wasting of the land as preparations for war. Now, Tolkien was a man that saw the trenches in World War I and the devastation of the land. And so from Tolkien's viewpoint, the Bible has relevance because if we don't have justice, think of no man's land between the French and the Germans and that devastation, and it literally sunk into the soil. And so that's kind of how I read Amos. And so with that, we also see this idea that as society goes, so goes nature, that there's a famine with water and with bread, but there's also another famine, isn't there? Yeah. Notice how well this idea of chapter 8, verses 11 through 12 kind of goes back to all that Amos has written, because there's this haunting prophecy in Amos 8, 11, and 12. Behold, the days shall come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of hearing the words of God. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even unto the east. They shall run to and fro, and seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. That's a prophecy of the apostasy. But it's also a prophecy of those who have shut God out of their life. They are starving, and they've shut themselves off from the very source They're not reading the Word of God. I can't help but think they have access to it. If they wanted to find it, they could find it, but they don't seem to want to find it. There's a famine not only of listening, but there's a famine of wanting to listen. May that never describe the Latter-day Saints. May we never have a famine of hearing his words. May that never happen in our lives and in our homes, because I think that prophecy is ominous and descriptive of a people who are not being led by God because they're not seeking him. Haunting words. Absolutely. The beauty to me of this whole book is the ending. Yep. And we're not going to end on a haunting note, and neither does Amos. Thank goodness. Yep. So if you look at the very end, go to the ninth chapter of Amos. And let's start in verse 8, where he's talking about their failure. Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from off the face of the earth. And then this message of hope. And now all of a sudden, this is where the hair on the back of my neck stands straight up. Saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. These people are going to be smitten, but Israel will come back. I will sift the house of Israel among all nations like court. But, and then verse 11, the last five verses of Amos are just absolutely glorious. So let's read Amos 9 verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof. I will raise up the ruins 
and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Now remember, Edom was the enemy to the east of Israel and Judah, and they were oftentimes adversarial. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. And so the ending of this book, with all this warning, and it's often found here in the Hebrew prophets, that there's a visible pattern of pronouncing curses and judgments and destruction, but oftentimes it is followed with a message of hope. And so Amos 9 ends in a message of hope connected to the land, and that God has given them the land. And I like to add in verse 15 as a stewardship, because it's God's land. And if we do the things that he has us do, all those verses Bryce read in the Book of Mormon are tied to these people, and they're tied to us. Whether you're listening to this podcast and you're in England or Africa, it's the same promise, all the way from individuals and families, all the way up to governments. And all of us can do our part. And I think when we do, we're living the the ideals of Amos. And back to Dr. Martin Luther King, when he read that verse, verse 24 in chapter five, he was challenging the powers that be to do better and to try to follow the principles of the constitution. And I think that that was a good invitation. And I think it still stands. All of us can look at each other and treat each other with fairness and really see each other and not be judging each other based on appearances or what have you, but really have pure communication. Now, the next book is going to do that as well. Obadiah is going to focus mostly on Edom and how much they didn't like Edom, but end with that same message, that message of hope. I always notice phrases like, but in that day, or it shall come to pass. And Obadiah is going to end that same way. Upon Mount Zion shall. So it's going to end in the same positive, but it starts out kind of negative. So let's do the brief negative, and then we'll turn to the positive of our day, and we'll end positive. I do acknowledge that there's some negative here in Obadiah. The author of the text is really castigating Edom. And remember, Edom is the traditional adversary of Judah and Israel, and they're to the east. And so I want to just kind of read Obadiah through the lens of the 137th Psalm. So if you go to Psalm 137, verse 1, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof. For there, they that carried us away captive required of us a song, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it even to the foundation thereof. You see Psalm 137 verse 7 
is the remembrance of the Jews that when the temple was raised, as in when it was destroyed, the Edomites cheered. They were excited. And so the author of Psalm 137 expresses bitterness towards these people. And that really is the main gist of Obadiah. They're not really excited about the the people that live in Edom. Now, if you remember, the Edomites are descendants of Esau. So that's really what's going on in verse 6. How are the things of Esau searched out? And there was a main city, a chief city in Edom. One of them was Seir. And that city, Seir, is a pun. It means hairy. And so if you remember when Esau was born, he came out all red and hairy. And that's another pun because Edom can mean red. It just depends on how you vowel point it. And so that idea of Edom being the place where the descendants of Esau live is a thread through the Bible. It's all the way back in Genesis, and now it's all the way through here. And then we read here that the people of Edom were excited when the temple was destroyed. Skip down to Obadiah. There's only one chapter, verse 10. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast one of them. So the author of Obadiah is writing about the destruction of the temple, and basically equating the people of Edom with the Babylonians. In verse 14 of Obadiah, it says, Neither shouldst thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Verse 14 is talking about that when the people were trying to flee from Jerusalem, they were trying to escape, that the Edomites assisted the Babylonians in helping hunt them down to trap them and to send them into exile. And so the author is saying that because of this, God's going to get them. And so we see that in verse 18. If you go to the middle of the verse, it says that the house of Esau will be stubble. And it says, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. That little bit at the end of verse 18 is a huge clue in biblical literature of a big deal when it comes to cursing. If you say that the house of so-and-so will have none that remain... That's big because, in other words, they're being wiped out. And so this is a really difficult group of scriptures. It doesn't have a lot of the ring of forgiveness. It really has this ring of, okay, you guys are really bad. Now, I don't want to just leave it there. The way I try to contextualize this, especially to an audience of Latter-day Saints, is I say, okay, let's look at this through the lens of the Doctrine and Covenants. And there's a really interesting phrase that's used in Isaiah, and it's used in Ezekiel, that phrase or that label is idumia. And idumia, if you go in the Hebrew and we put this in the show notes, it's the same as Edom. So the word Edom is translated by the King James translators in some instances as idumia. So knowing that, go to the Doctrine and Covenants section one and look in verse 36. And here's the point. Here's kind of how I interpret this and read this. Verse 36 of section one of the Doctrine and Covenants reads, The Lord shall have power over his saints and shall reign in their midst and shall come down in judgment upon Idumea or the world. And so if we read this text that way, that Edom is a type for the world or or a type for people that are wicked, I think as a Latter-day Saint audience, we can relax and we can think, 
okay, it's going to be okay. This can be read typologically. And I think if we read it that way, it takes away some of the sting. Because I understand in our modern minds, we can read this and say, oh my goodness, like the author of Obadiah really hates these people. But I think it's okay to also read this from a Peshat perspective or from a literal perspective, because from the perspective of the people, this was really bad. Like they cheered the destruction of the temple. But that is a perfect image for the world. Now, if you think about our culture, and you don't have to think too hard, have there been groups of people that have basically cheered or they've rallied people to try to get a temple not constructed, or they've done all that they could politically and sometimes even use force to try to stop God's work from progressing? And I'm talking all the way back to the Nauvoo and Missouri period, even into today. And so reading the book of Obadiah that way kind of gives us some perspective and maybe gives it a little bit more context so we can kind of see it with a bigger lens. And it's a very interesting juxtaposition, Mike. It's a foil. It's a contrast. Because what the Edomites were doing was not taking care of each other. They were rejoicing in the destruction of their brethren. Because Edom came from Isaac, who came from Abraham. Right, right. They are all from Abraham, and they should take care of each other. So the juxtaposition here is... Don't be like that because the Lord's people are the opposite. So notice how Obadiah ends. It starts by talking about a group of people who rejoiced in the destruction of others and ends by talking about saviors on Mount Zion. And he has this vision of the latter days. He has this vision of the saints in Zion today that is very beautiful that we are the opposite of the Edomites, that we are our brother's keeper, and that I am interested in what happens to you, and I want what's best for you. I would never rejoice in your pain. I want to help you overcome it. That's what the Lord's people do. So in verse 17, he says, but upon Zion shall be deliverance. And that's because we're seeking to help each other be delivered. And there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And then we end with this beautiful verse. They are saviors. Saviors shall come upon Mount Zion to contrast the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It literally reads in the Hebrew that Moshaim are going to come upon Mount Zion. Moshaim is the word that is translated for saviors, plural. John Welch did a really good study. He did a deep dive on that idea of what is a Moshiach, and it is a savior. It's a savior who saves you by nonviolent means. And so literally in the midst of this book that is drenched in some pretty difficult language, God says he's going to send Moshaim or a bunch of Mosiahs onto Mount Zion. That idea of being a savior in Zion is, I think, the very heart and soul of being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That's what God is asking of his people, that we mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. So my focus is on getting myself back to Heavenly Father, my children, my family, my ward, within my calling— And then I'm going to try and save everyone that's in the spirit world that I can. I am doing what I can to help Heavenly Father with his work. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love how John A. Widso said it. He declared, in our preexistent state, 
in the day of the great council, we made a certain agreement with the Almighty. The Lord proposed a plan. We accepted it. Since the plan is intended for all men, we became parties to the salvation of every person under that plan. We agreed right then and there to be not only saviors for ourselves, but measurably saviors for the whole human family. We went into partnership with the Lord. The working out of the plan became then not merely the Father's work and the Savior's work, but also our work. The least of us, the humblest, is in partnership with the Almighty in achieving the purpose of the eternal plan of salvation. We are saviors on Mount Zion, and we are to do all that we can to help Heavenly Father save them. Save them if they've died. Save them if they live. Save them if they don't know anything about the church. Go preach to them. Send missionaries their way. Save them if they're within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Teach them in our classes. Perfect the saints. Proclaim the gospel. Save the dead. Wherever they are, it is our job to go find them, and allow Heavenly Father to save them. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today as we've gone through Amos and Obadiah. We will see you next week when we cover the books of Jonah and Micah. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.